This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. to the program. It's the Friday edition and it just dawned on me that this is our last program in October, which means the year is almost over. When we come back on Monday, it will be November the 1st. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Grateful that you took the time to tune in today. Uh, this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about life, questions about church, anything and everything that's on your heart, all you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use hands-free feature on your phone by using the KSLR mobile app just at the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We got a lot going on tonight here at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be teaching uh, in Revelation chapters, the end of chapter 6, um, the 6th and 7th seals as we begin uh, in, we finish chapter 6, we're going to begin also in chapter 7 tonight. Um, pretty heavy stuff. You know, everybody thinks it's really interesting and kind of geek out over the the, the Great Tribulation. But it's not interesting. I mean, it's, 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 it wears you out. And it doesn't get any better. It just keeps getting markedly worse. And uh, tonight we're going to finish... Um, or at least start chapter 7 when the seventh seal is about to be opened. So lots of stuff going on. Uh, We have prayer, just so you not that you need to come here, but uh, prayer every Saturday morning at 9.30, corporate prayer. And maybe you can set aside a few moments around 9.30 tomorrow to be praying for us. Uh, And then on Sunday, I'm going to be doing, um, finishing uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which will leave us, I think, after this Sunday, uh, if things go as planned, two more studies in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and then we'll be moving into the Gospel of Mark here at Calvary Chapel. Wherever it is that you're going to church, go with a heart that says, okay, Lord, here I am, use me. What about me and what about today? Uh, And God will provide some divine appointments. Look to see who's hurting. Look to see who's alone. Come up next to them and be there with them. See how God uses you. It'll change your perspective on church. That is 
a promise. Well, let's get to questions while we await any phone calls that come today. Our first question today uh, comes from our mobile app from Chip. He says, uh, I have a friend who, when I was really sick in bed, told me to read Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, along with some other verses, to receive healing from the Lord. I thought that Isaiah 53 was about Jesus dying on the cross for us. Am I not understanding this passage of Scripture? No, Chip, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately for you, unfortunately for your friend, um, he's the one who doesn't understand the passage of Scripture. Uh, by his wounds, by his stripes, we were healed. And uh, these charismatic churches, and they're always out of balance. They're churches that really don't focus on teaching the Bible. They'll preach a lot about the Bible, and they'll preach a lot using Bible verses, but with a really, really bad understanding. Now, Isaiah 53 uh, is the atonement. And there is no physical healing at all promised or guaranteed by the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that God does not heal today. There are times when he still does. It's one of the gifts of the Spirit, and God gifts those gifts to those who are sick. But the charismatic wing, the overly charismatic wing of the church, sadly, uh, has this way out of balance view that by his stripes we are healed and they don't dig into the original language. They don't look at the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27, I think, and and uh, uh, Second Peter, uh, or First Peter, actually, I think, talk about uh, the, 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 the stripes he's healed us with his stripes from the one disease that is fatal 100% of the time. And, of course, that is death that comes along with sin or because of sin. So you're absolutely right, Chip. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus dying on the cross and healing the spiritual condition for everybody who will believe. It has nothing at all whatsoever to do with healing. And I know so many of us, we've had that ingrained into our brains for so long that we just assume without even digging into the scripture, well, that's what it means, when that's not at all what it means. So Chip, you keep reading your Bible. You keep studying your Bible. And when you're sick, especially you said, I was really sick in bed, uh, you don't need this kind of fall, F-A-U-X, encouragement, because it's not encouraging at all. This is that group of people say, you know, if only you have enough faith, you can demand that God heals you. And we simply cannot do that. Imagine the nerve, the unmitigated gall it takes to demand anything of a God who's given everything for us. So, Chip, you're right. He's not. And all of you out there who have been taught wrongly that this is um, uh, a promise of physical healing, if we just believe enough, uh, please, please study your Bible. As a pastor, I deal with a whole lot of pain, anguish, really, from people who were taught that and believe that God failed them or believe that somehow God wasn't uh, pleased with them and that they, they somehow fell short and then that's why God wouldn't heal them over and over and over. And that kind of, of hopelessness is devastating. So uh, I hope that helps. Thank you, Chip. Uh, here's another one, this one from Richard. It says Richard 1. I don't know if that's Richard the first or, or uh, just Richard and a typo. 
Richard said, we measure our day by hours, minutes, and seconds, and our lives by years and months and days. In heaven does God measure time as we do on earth. In other words, at the time your program is playing on the radio, is that the same time where God is? Richard, evidently you're kind of strange like I am, because I, I, I spent a lot of time over the years thinking about stuff like this. Um, God does not measure hours, minutes, and seconds, and years, and months, and days like we do. Uh, God is in the present. Uh, he is the I am, not the I was or the I will be. He's the I am. So for God, the the end and the beginning is all the same to him. Uh, he sees history literally at the same time. And that's why we're encouraged to live life one day at a time. Spend the grace that God gives us. And um, and, and we're always in the in the will of God. But we know that Peter says, and he's figuratively speaking, he says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So time on earth and time in heaven is completely different. Now, here's the strange part. Uh, You ask, is my program playing on the same radio? Is that the same time where God is? And the answer to that is yes, because God is everywhere. He's always present. And I love the idea that God is always with us. I love when I sign on to this radio program, I can say, okay, Lord, help us. Give me wisdom and help me be a source of encouragement. Help me to, to, to communicate just how high and wide and deep and long your love is to the people. Because God is here. In the same way, Richard, God is with you in the moment, in the hour you are. Now, again, he's not looking to go to bed at the same time you go to bed. He doesn't have to set an alarm. We, we know that. But God is outside of time and space, and everything with God is now. Now, that leads me to, to believe some really strange things, and I always get some pushback from this. It's not heresy because it doesn't deal with God's nature. But I believe that when we get to heaven, we enter into the eternal now. And, and, and I literally mean if, if I, I mentioned yesterday we lost a friend, Paul and I lost a friend yesterday, and I believe when he got to heaven, I believe that we're there with him. That's just what it means to be in the present. And Jesus is always in the present. And so time that affects us in this time and space dimension is completely different, but I think the benefits are similar. So, yeah, I think at the time my program, my, the, uh, the program here is playing on the radio, uh, I believe that's the same time where God is. You gave me a great picture, Richard, that I'm going to try to use now as I pray for the program. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that God is tuning his radio to AM 630, the word, at 4 o'clock to listen to the program and sort of cheer you guys on. So that's the best I can do with that, Richard, but... Hope that makes a little bit of sense to people. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Tracy. Uh, He or she, and we've got both Tracys. um, Matthew 10.23, Jesus said, When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Was this God using the Roman army to punish those that rejected and murdered his son 
Is this coming referring to judgment? Um, Tracy, the, ju- the, the coming does refer to judgment of a sort, but that's not really what is in view here. Um, let me read the whole verse. Uh, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another, he says, prior to, to what you asked about. Then he says, I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Um, this is a difficult verse, but only if we forget that Jesus is telling the future before the Son of Man comes. He's going all the way down to the end of time. So the way to understand this is that it is prophecy. It's not Jesus just teaching or just speaking. It's prophecy. And he's saying that the gospel is going to be preached to Israel right up until the moment of his second coming. Now, I know, and I'm going to actually be touching on this in our Bible study tonight in Revelation, that this is going to occur through the ministry of the two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, at the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall in Revelation chapter 11, but also the 144,000 Jewish evangelists from Revelation chapter 7. So um, this, this is a prophecy that extends beyond the mission of the Twelve. Some of what Jesus was saying was instruction to them, but then he goes to the end, and he, he, he makes clear that that's the case when he says, um, uh, the Son of Man is coming, and that is a Jewish reference to judgment from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. He says there, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Uh, so we need not be confused by passages like this if we just remind, remember the context. And then Jesus goes on uh, in this um, um, teaching uh, to uh, explain why these things are going to happen. He says, look, uh, a student's not above his teacher, a servant above his master. And what he's saying is, if they did these things to me, they're going to do these things to you. But yes, this does deal uh, with judgment. So Tracy, good question. Thank you very, very much. This one is from Richard uh, from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a two-part question. Can you give more insight on the Last Supper? I always wonder if the Last Supper was only Jesus and his 12 disciples. We know that Judas, the betrayer, sat close enough, if not next to Jesus, since they both dipped the bread in a bowl at the same time. Mark 14.20 says, It is one of the 12, uh, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Is Jesus saying it was just them or those 13, I'll correct the, the grammar a little bit. It was just those 13 eating at the Last Supper. Every picture that's been sold on the retail market shows Jesus has 12 disciples only. But is that the case? And then I'll get to the other question in just a moment, uh, Richard. But let me deal with this one first. Um, um, Judas certainly was close. Judas, the, the way they would be seated around the last uh, the table we call the Last Supper... Um, Judas would be given the guest of honor. Now, that's significant because Jesus obviously knew that Judas was going to betray him. But Jesus sat him next to him. 
He, he did it on purpose. He wanted to give Judas an opportunity to repent, although he knew and we know that Judas wasn't going to do that. And what that means, Richard, is that when uh, Jesus pulled out a, a, a bucket and, uh, and, and, and lifted his robe um, and, and washed feet, the first set of dirty feet that he would have washed would have been those of Judas, the betrayer. I always wonder, and I can't help, this is just the way my mind works. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of foot washing here over the years at Calvary Chapel and outreaches that we've done. And, and every time I've been involved in washing people's feet, and I've done that um, in other countries, I've done it here. Um, our ladies do this all the time at our women's retreats. It's a, uh, a wonderfully blessed part of the, of the retreat. It's so humbling to have your feet washed. It's not humbling to wash somebody else's feet. That's a joy. It's a delight. But to have your own feet washed is really humbling. And part of the reason is because when the person washing your feet is doing it, they're looking at you and they're praying for you the whole time. Imagine what it was like when Jesus was washing Judas's feet and staring daggers into his eyes, into his heart. Maybe pleading with the Judas, it's not too late. But that's what he had done. So um, that's exactly the way it would have worked out. Then Jesus, of course, went around and worked on the others. It was after that where Judas was dismissed. After he dipped his uh, bread in the bowl with Jesus, he Jesus looked at him and said, "What you do, do quickly." And and he had to go before the the uh, the element of the cup could be partaken of. Now, as to whether there were only 12 and Jesus there, it doesn't seem so to me, but we're not given any detail. I believe that there were some of the women who'd been following him. Um, I think it was the 12 that were seated around the table closest to Jesus. But I do believe, Richard, that there were others who were there as well, probably the same people that had been following Jesus around for some time. Second question he asks is, what does eating the bread and drinking the cup signify to believers? Well, eating the bread is, is uh, you know, when in an, in an ancient culture, especially a Jewish culture, to eat with someone was to be one with them. Uh, that's why when somebody, hospitality was so highly regarded. When somebody came into town, you'd invite them to your home, and it was like it was king for a day or queen for a day uh, because all of your hospitality was poured out. And so eating the bread is, is becoming one with a table of showbread in the, in the uh, um, holy place was a, a picture of the fellowship that we can have with God once Jesus died and gave up his life for our sins. So eating the bread certainly simply said that, that uh, Jesus, you took the punishment my sin deserves. I'm one with you. Drinking the cup, of course, is, is an acknowledgement of the gift of eternal life. Uh, drinking the cup, Jesus, um, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, said in a figurative use of the word cup, Father, if this cup can pass from me. In other words, what he was saying is if there's any way that I can obey you, any way that I can finish my mission without enduring this torture and this death, then, Lord, if there's any way, let me let me let this cup pass from me. 
remember we asked, or he asked three times, and three times the Father basically said, no, there's no other way. And Jesus said, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. Obviously, these are the elements of communion, and the cup, of course, is a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross for sinners. Jesus died that we could live. And that's what all of that means to all of us. Uh, Not this Sunday, because this Sunday is the last day of October, but uh, a week from Sunday uh, will be Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel and in many churches. They'll do it on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, And we are celebrating the death, the torture, the punishment, the shame that was inflicted on him so that we wouldn't be subject to any of those things. And the death, of course, because of the empty tomb that gives us life. Good questions, Richard. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question. It comes from our mobile app from Jose. Uh, What does church discipline mean? Is that considered biblical? Um, Jose, church discipline is to be affected when there are people. A good example of it is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, and then the outcome of it is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, uh, when somebody who is a professing believer is uh, living in willful sin, they're, they're in active rebellion against God, and they refuse to repent, um, then the church is supposed to infect affect rather uh, church discipline. That church discipline is is uh, according to Matthew chapter eighteen takes three steps. The first step is if you see somebody that you know. Now, uh, let me say this, Jose. Most Christians are unwilling to do this, and I say that to our shame. If you see somebody that you care about, and they're sinning against God cheating on a spouse, maybe they're drinking or doing drugs, maybe they're using filthy language, maybe they're just being mean to their family, maybe they're being unkind, maybe they're holding on to unforgiveness. When you see that, if you care about somebody, you've got to confront them. And in confrontation, you know, we, we always have a picture of us getting nose to nose with somebody. That's not what it is. Confronting somebody with their sin is saying, look, I care about you. And you say you're a Christian. And because you say you're a Christian, this is how you should behave. This is how you should respond. And you're not doing it. Please repent. Please ask God to forgive you and change your behavior. That's step one, Jose, of church discipline. If that person doesn't listen, and you give them a little bit of time, if they don't listen... Then step two says, take two or three others with you. Find trusted people in the church, people who you know their heart is right with God, and together go as a group to the same brother or sister and say, I've invited these friends to come to you because they love you too. And when I asked you to stop sinning, when I told you you needed to repent, all you did was get angry with me and there's been no change in your life. And so then there are other people there to serve as witnesses and to say, um, look, this this person needs to repent. And hopefully then you'll listen to them. 
that leads to step three. If there is still no repentance, then what we're told to do, Jesus says, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean we blab it all over the church. It doesn't mean that we gossip about it. It just means that we go to the people in the church who are leaders and we say, there's a friend, we've done step one, we've done step two, and this person is still living in sin. And we think the church needs to know about it as we do step three of church discipline. And there are times if they won't listen to the church, if there's still no repentance, then church discipline culminates in putting the unbeliever, he's acting like an unbeliever, putting the unbeliever out and stripping him of the covering of the church, uh, the facade that he's a Christian or she's a Christian, uh, just sort of making them deal with their sin just between them and the Lord. And often what happens, God sort of takes his hand off of those people. The enemy will come and pound and pound and pound, and hopefully the result will be like it was in that instance in 1 Corinthians 5, where the person finally turns back and says, I'm sorry, please forgive me, can I come home? And then we gladly open our arms and welcome them back. And we celebrate the goodness of God, we celebrate the grace of God, uh, that he goes out and gets the people that he loves. So, Jose, that's what church discipline is, and it is considered biblical. What's unbiblical is the fact that most churches don't do this anymore because we're more interested in getting people to fill the seats than we are in rightly representing Jesus Christ. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in our month. We'd love to have your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that comes to us from Mark on our mobile app. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. I was listening to a megachurch pastor, and he was talking about generational sins. The term generational sins didn't sit right with me. Am I wrong? Um, Mark, probably, I, I, again, I don't know who the pastor was, but 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 uh, I go back to that out-of-balance, charismatic pastor who says generational curses are affecting us, and we can blame the sins in our life on our our, our our ancestors, our grandparents, our parents, those are generational curses. Uh, there's no such thing as generational curse. So let me make that clear. There is no such thing. Uh, that is a, a, a really poor uh, exposition of the Old Testament uh, when uh, God says uh, in the course of giving the Ten Commandments, um, he says that uh, if you obey um, uh, if you disobey these things, then, then there will be curses 
to a thousand generation or to to the third or fourth generation. But if you obey these commands, there will be blessings uh, to those who love me uh, to to the to a thousand generations. And again, that's Hebrew parallelism. He's just doing a contrast. Now you asked about generational sins. And um, while there are no generational curses, and so please in the audience don't confuse the two, uh, I do believe that there is a generational sins, and it doesn't mean that we're doing something and we have no choice but to do it because it's what our parents did. But I think apart from Christ, that's what we learn to do. Uh, um, um, every pastor is dealt with uh, people who grew up in, a, in an alcoholic home as just one example. And often the people who grew up in the home of an alcoholic also drink and are prone to alcoholism themselves. That's a generational sin. Now, the good news, Mark, is that Jesus' death and the the the, the gift of his Holy Spirit when we are born again um, completely destroys generational sin. In other words, we don't have to be bound for one moment longer by the sins from our past or the sins from people in our family in the past. Just because that's the way it's always been, remember, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come. And when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then in that case, um, um, we are no longer bound by sin at all. Paul says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you in the King James. Uh, the NIV says, will no longer be your master. So um, th- there are generational sins only in the sense that we have a tendency to repeat the behavior that we grew up with. People that grew up in angry homes are often angry. People that, that uh, use foul language, uh, people who are racists, those kinds of things. It's because that's the way they grew up. Uh, but in Christ, remember, we're set free from those things. Now, likely what this pastor was talking about, because it is a, a popular teaching, it's, it's terribly wrong, but it's popular, is that generational curses are what causes us to sin in many cases. And again, I want to emphasize that's simply not true. If you look into the book of Exodus, um, that says, um, I will curse those to the third and fourth generation, and here's the key, to, of those who hate me. But for those who love me, I will bless them to a thousand generations. And again, that comparative uh, language is intended to say, God is infinitely greater than any damage that was done. So generational sins, in a sense, there are those generational curses, there are none, and uh, it's an, an embarrassment, actually, Mark, that uh, generational curses has been taught so often by so many. It's more embarrassing that we Christians buy their books and listen to their sermons and are guilted into giving them our money. By the way, speaking of money, uh, I'm going to talk not this week, not tomorrow, or this, this Sunday, this weekend, but uh, a week from Sunday, uh, I'm going to be teaching on giving. First um, Corinthians chapter 16, the first uh, seven or eight verses, uh, that's where we're going to start. And uh, that's just something we don't talk about here much at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We teach on it when we come across it in the Bible, um, but um, it's not something that we uh, focus on at all. There's very little emphasis on giving here, but we're going to talk about biblical giving 
and what the responsibility in response to grace ought to be for the born-again believer. Here is another question. This one is from Ariana from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron. Why do you believe the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses? I've heard some people think that it will be Elijah and Enoch. And then she signs it kindly, Ariana. Now, I know Ariana, and she is kind as well. So, uh, Ariana, let me tell you why I believe it. I was giggling when I read your question because I had uh, one of the ladies in the church uh, last night. We were teaching from, um, uh, not last night, but Wednesday night, from Daniel, and uh, Daniel chapter 9. And uh, she says, she says, Pastor Ron, I think I know who the, the two witnesses are. I think Elijah and Enoch, because those are the only two people who didn't die. And uh, so we were talking about it, and she was so, and she's she's a delight. She she just, you could see, I figured this out. And I said, I don't think so. And you can see the look on her face. She got so disappointed. Um People that say Enoch is one of the witnesses, their only reason for saying that is because he didn't die. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed a man once to die and then face the judgment. Uh, And Enoch didn't really die. And so Enoch and Elijah, uh, those are the two that have to be the two witnesses. But that misses the point of what um, the, the judgment of the Great Tribulation is all about. At the beginning of the Great Tribulation, God is going to send these two witnesses. And then we know Elijah is one of them. There's no question about that. Because Elijah, we're told prophetically, must come. Jesus said this. Elijah must come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So we know Elijah is going to be one of them. The other one has to be Moses. Now Moses died. But remember... Elijah and Moses are both going to die, and then they're going to be brought back to life. God is is in charge of of uh, the, the the realm of the dead. So Moses represents the law. Elijah, to a Jewish mind, represents the prophets. Jesus said, "The law and the prophets testified of me," and because. The law and the prophets testified of him. That's exactly what they're going to be doing at the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall in Jerusalem in the first half of the Great Tribulation. And the world is going to huff and puff and try to destroy him, but they're going to destroy people. They're going to destroy them with fire that comes from their mouths. And, and, and uh, you know, Elijah called down fire from heaven. Uh, Moses was the other instrument. The miracles that the two witnesses do are similar to the kind of miracles that they did on this earth. But the the real reason, Ariana, is because the law and the prophets, and that's Moses and Elijah, that's symbolic of, of all of the prophets and the entirety of the law. Jesus said, they testify of me. And that testifying is going to continue right up until the very end. Something you didn't ask, Ariana, but what's going to happen to them uh, at the at the midway point of the Great Tribulation is God is going to permit them to be killed. And for three days, their bodies are going to be dragged through uh, the streets. Um, the people are going to party. We finally got rid of these troublemakers kind of thing. Their bodies are going to be desecrated, uh, which is a, a horrible offense uh, to Jews and to Muslims alike, by the way. And uh, and then one day in the middle of 
their celebration, the breath of life is going to enter Elijah and Moses again and, and in front of everybody in the world. They're going to be given life and ascend into heaven. And still, people won't repent. So, Ariana, that's why. Enoch, to say, well, Enoch didn't die, so it has to be him. You can't make an argument, a theological argument from silence. Just the fact that, well, he didn't die doesn't mean that he's in that position. Enoch, well, I love him, and Enoch represents the church. He's a picture of the church. He he walked with God when nobody else in the world was. Uh, he met God and was changed. He got a word from God and was changed radically. Uh, for 65 years, he was like everybody else in the world. Got this message. For 300 years, he walked with God. Uh, and that's a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why he was taken away before the judgment of the flood. Again, a picture of Christians being taken away before the judgment of the Great Tribulation. Thank you, Ariana. Good questions. Our phones are quiet. We'd love to have you questions in the time that we got left. Uh, Dennis asks, why do we need rewards in heaven since we will be with Jesus? Well, Dennis, we, 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 the, the, your use of the word need doesn't really um, um, express, we don't need rewards in heaven. But Jesus will give us rewards in heaven. Do we not want them if he's going to hand them to us? And if we're going to throw those crowns at his feet and to, to honor him, we need those crowns to do it. You know, and Dennis, this isn't the way you phrased your question, but I've had people, I, I'm, I don't need any rewards. Just being with Jesus is enough. Believe me, being with Jesus is more than enough. More than enough. But we need to get to the place where we, we want what Jesus wants, and he wants us the rewards. He's going to hand rewards to us personally. Think about that for a moment. He's going to hand rewards to us personally, and when he does that, we don't want our hands to be empty. So, need's not the issue here, but desire really is. And truly, the reason we're going to throw those crowns down is because we're going to recognize that being with Jesus is all we need. That's the goal of our salvation. And that time is coming. So, Dennis, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, he or she says, I prefer going to a lot of different churches instead of joining just one. My friend says that's bad, but it works for me. Can I have your thoughts? Uh, anonymous, your friend knows what he's speaking about. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to really examine your heart. Why do you prefer going to a lot of different churches? Is it possibly because you don't have to make any commitments? Is it because you don't feel any pressure to give? Or you don't feel any pressure to serve? You know, if I go to a, a new church every week, or I go to one church for a month and change and go to another church for a month, I'm certainly not going to get plugged in and serve. I'm not going to do that because, well, one, they don't know me and there wouldn't be enough time for me to, 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 to serve. But those are the questions you have to ask. Why do you prefer going to a lot of churches instead of one? And the answer is going to be one of those things, either commitment, I don't want to serve, or I don't want to be under somebody's authority, uh, I don't want any ties, I don't want to get involved in the body of Christ. All those things, they're terrible, terrible reasons 
for being disobedient. And make no mistake, Anonymous, you are being disobedient. Your friend knows what he or she is talking about. You need to get involved with the church, let the Lord lead and guide, and then be completely committed to the work that God is doing through that church. You know, I tell our people here all the time that until you begin to serve the body Christ has placed you in, you never really understand the fullness that God has given us in his body. So whatever your motivation is, um, often it's authority. I I don't want to be under authority. Uh, That's why people stay home now and listen to Bible studies or sermons online. It's because, well, I don't have to give. I don't have to get up early. I don't, if, if it's spiritual laziness, if it's an unwillingness to be under authority, if it's not wanting to give, there's so much anonymous of your heart that really needs to be examined. It's simply impossible to thrive unless you are a member of, and when I say member, I don't mean membership in the, in the cultural sense, to make you sign a covenant, those kinds of I'm not talking about that. But you need to be engaged in a local body of believers. It's your body. You're a part of the body. The body needs you and you need the body. And it's impossible to thrive in your Christian walk. It's impossible to have a healthy Christian walk unless that's exactly what you're doing. So I hope that makes sense. Here's another anonymous question. It says, how do you feel about a pastor not having close relationships with his staff? Um, anonymous personally. Now, I, I can only deal with this personally. Um, I can't imagine not being close with my family. My staff pastors and their wives and their children are my family. Uh, some of them we have a, a, a relationship, brother and, and brother. But some I have a relationship. I'm like a father figure to them and they're sons and daughters to me. Their kids become my grandchildren. And I can't imagine not having a close relationship with them. I'd be missing out on so much. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that I owe it to them to be in their lives and to give myself completely to them. I'm always available. At least I hope my guys would would all say that I'm available to them. But our relationship goes way beyond church. Our relationship, um, we're family. Um, They come to my house. I go to their house. I enjoy the things their kids are doing and go watch them play sports sometimes. I mean, this is family, and that's what a church is supposed to be. Now, the reason I assume that you're asking the question is because there are a lot of senior pastors, and remember, that's an American term. Lead pastors, senior pastors, those are American terms. We're all just pastors. Um, But there's a lot of them who believe, especially as they get more and more well-known, we have sort of a celebrity complex in in the American church, uh, and they feel like, well, well, you know, I have to stay above them and then minister down to them. And so we never really get close. And I think those pastors are missing out. I think their their theology is missing out. Can you imagine Jesus not getting close to the Twelve? Can you imagine Paul? I mean, all you have to do is read the, the, the goodbyes in Paul's letters. I and mean, it's clear that he has intimate relationships, intimate personal relationships 
with the people he's saying hello to or goodbye, the people that he's commending. And I just can't imagine that it would work any other way. For me personally, not to know people is difficult. You know, our church is small, so I get a chance to interact with people. The building is small, but we have a lot of people. And what that means is I I don't get to know, I can't know all of them. And that really causes me some heartache. As my vision has gone, uh, I, I can't recognize people. And so, you know, it's somebody that I know really well, they're very familiar, they get in my face, and I know who it is I'm talking to. But there are people that, that I'll say, Paula, what's their name? And she'll say, Ron, they've been coming for like five years. And that really is difficult for me because I want to know them and I want to be involved in their lives. It's just not possible. Praise the Lord. I've got a wonderful staff of people uh, and their wives who are, are intimately involved with the people here. But I just can't imagine doing church any other way. And those pastors who are not available to their flocks and who don't consider uh, their staff like family, uh, they're the ones who are missing out. Here is an, another anonymous question. This is a loaded question I could do about two weeks worth of Bible studies on. What is the key to a godly marriage? Um, I'm like a five-year-old. Jesus, you know, a lot of times when Paul and I are out, and we'll, we'll, we'll use the amount of time that we've been together um, as, a, uh, as an opening to talk with people. And uh, say, uh, you know, we'll introduce ourselves to somebody at a restaurant and say, oh, are you guys married? Yeah. Oh, how long have you been married? And they say, oh, we've been married 10 years. And, and then I'll be able to say, well, we've been together 52 years. And people look at me, how did you do it? And I always say, well, we tried to ruin it, but Jesus fixed it. So anonymous keeping Jesus at the center of your marriage, keeping him the reason your ministry to your to your, your husband or to your wife. So that's the key. Let me also say this. The Word of God. A husband and wife need to pray together. They need to read the Word together. And God does this supernatural thing, knitting our hearts together through His Word by the work and the power of His Spirit. So the husband and wife that aren't praying together aren't reading together. Well, they're the ones who have, they have the key, but they've lost the key. And that's why their marriage struggles. That's why they're frustrated with one another. Uh, it's, it's, it's why they speak harshly to one another. So the key to a godly marriage is just be with Jesus, be in the Word together, be in prayer together, and then one other thing, make sure that in the marriage, uh, for those of you who have children, Make sure that your children know and everybody else can see that the marriage comes first. Your commitment is to your wife, men, ladies. The commitment is to your husband before takes priority over your commitment for or your love towards even your children. That's a healthy environment for them to be raised in. So those are the keys to a godly marriage um, uh, you know, I could easily say uh, the, the key to a godly marriage for me was Paula. I met Paula. And she's such a godly woman, and, and uh, I am so blessed. But um, even the most godly of people, it takes a lot of work 
to have a godly marriage. And we can't do it on our own. We do it only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Dale is next. He says, this probably be the last question that we get to today. Why did Michael and Satan argue over Moses' body? Um, Michael the archangel and Satan uh, argued because uh, the devil knew that if he could find Moses' body, if he could retrieve it, then Israel would would, uh, worship him as an idol. Uh, They would mummify him. They were in Egypt for 400 years. They knew all about mummifying. And uh, and they would have mummified the body and it would have become a stumbling block. Uh, And God had plans for Moses. So God buried Moses. It could have something to do with the fact that 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 God's not done with Moses. Uh, he's going to uh, uh, put Moses in the middle of the Great Tribulation, at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And uh, God wanted to be sure that his body was never found. And, of course, it hasn't been found. And, and Satan's plan was just the opposite. Now, this points out something that's important. We too often as Christians have a tendency to think that Jesus and, and, and the devil are arch enemies and they're equal opposites. And that's not true. Jesus is the creator and the devil is created. The difference in power is infinite between them. The heavenly equal of Lucifer who became Satan, is Michael the archangel. He's called Israel's prince in the Old Testament, and, uh, and, and he is the one that protects him. We're going to see Michael in our study, not uh, this coming Wednesday, but, the, but, but next Wednesday, or not this past Wednesday, but the next Wednesday, when Michael is sent from heaven to deliver the answer to a prayer that was held up in, in the heavens for 21 days. So Michael is the equal opposite of Satan or Lucifer. And uh, Michael the archangel is powerful. Satan, we know, is powerful. But uh, he and Michael can duke it out. But because Michael's fighting on the right side, Michael is always the one who prevails because I just like saying this. He's on a mission from God. So, Dale, that's why they disputed over Moses' body. What have I got for time? Just uh just over one. Okay, well, just over one minute. Let me see. Okay, here's a quick one I can do. This is from Patrick. One minute. What's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Uh, I'll keep this one for Monday too, Patrick, but real simply, the difference between conviction and condemnation, one draws you away from Jesus, that's condemnation. The other draws you toward Jesus, that's conviction. Conviction good, condemnation bad. Conviction from the Holy Spirit, condemnation from the unholy spirit, the enemy of our soul. So, thank you, Patrick, for that. I'm going to come back. I want to do a little bit more on that when we get here on Monday. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's been a really great week. A lot of questions sent in. We've had a lot of phone calls every day except for today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Go to church, find somebody who's hurting, and be a blessing to them. We'll see you Monday. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.